know that's going to kill him. All the time, y'all. I need to call my wife real quick. We are in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we will be continuing our study in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and all the way through probably 21 this morning, 14 to 21. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can enjoy the scriptures together. Lord, help us. In the passage we have this morning, Lord, it's a little confusing, a little controversy. Um, I pray you help us to not get distracted and so miss you. And so help us to understand what you're all about and what, what's going on here from your glory's perspective, more so than that we've got everything figured out. So I pray you help us, convict us, encourage us, exhort us. I ask that your spirit will be at work in us. As, as um, Tom mentioned this morning, this, this too is by your grace. And so open our eyes and transform us and encourage us with your truth. In your name I pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 2, um, we're going to, uh, again, look at verses 14 through 20, uh, 21, maybe get beyond 21. We'll have to see how it goes. Um, this is called the day of Pentecost. If you remember, as we've done our studies up to this point in time, Jesus gave his last words to, to his disciples, and his last words were basically, you shall receive, what, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be or you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. At that point in time, he departed. They stared up into heaven. Two uh, heavenly beings appeared in white robes and challenged them with why they were standing there looking and gazing up into heaven because Christ will return in the same way they saw him go. At which point in time, they did what Jesus told them to do. They returned to Jerusalem. And the scriptures, as we've already seen, describes them as being of one accord in prayer, considering the scriptures, ministering to one another, teaching one another, encouraging one another. Uh, and the whole theme is of one accord for, for God's glory. At which point in time, as you know, Peter speaks up and says we should have a twelfth. And uh, so they chose Matthias to be the twelfth. The contrast, of course, the most important part of that section was the contrast between the godly ones, the 120 godly ones, and Judas, and the challenge of considering those two different, uh, or that contrast between those two. At which point in time, last week we were in chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. And um, was it, did we do all of 1 through 13 last week? Yeah, we did all of it last week. I, was, I wasn't sure. All of a sudden, it, I couldn't remember if it was two weeks or one week. But in, in one week, we looked at 1 through 13. The, um, the Spirit comes upon uh, the, the, the people in the upper room, and um, or in, in a room, I'm sorry, in a place. I said it was probably the temple. If you were here last week, I'm guessing it was probably the temple. Filled the, filled the place. People came rushing over to see what was going on. And then the, the people who had received the Holy Spirit, which most likely is probably all 120 or however many of the 120 that were there, began to minister. And they were ministering to people in their own languages. That is, the hearers were hearing in whatever language they, um, they spoke natively. People responded, and some people were amazed, verse 12, and perplexed. Others and everybody was saying to one another, what does this mean? And others were mocking and saying they're filled with new wine. Now, in today's passage, we're discovering that the ones who are most likely the ones saying, this is interesting, by the way, and intriguing, the ones seemingly saying, being amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean, is one group of people, and seemingly the other group of people are the ones saying, they are filled with wine. Well, who are these two groups is the question. Seemingly, the one group, the ones who are amazed and perplexed and saying, what does this mean, are all these people from all over the place. But I would argue the ones saying, ah, these people, they're just filled with new wine, are who? Well, we discover in today's text, they're most likely the Jews from the immediate area. Which is especially stunning. And the reason why I say that, by the way, is because if you'll notice, starting away in verse 14, we'll read the whole text in just a second, but notice this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, 
whoever the them is, I would argue the them is focused on the last statement, they're filled with new wine, because what he says next, men of where? Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Now he's speaking to who? Is he speaking to all these people from all over the place? No. He's speaking to the people from Judea, immediately surrounding Jerusalem, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But then he goes on in verse 16, and we'll, now we'll read the rest of the text. It is interesting, though, to notice that the people who are giving even these, these 120 or so, maybe a little bit less, as well as the 11, and specifically Peter, the, the ones who are giving the most grief are who? The Jews who live right there around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. The, the ones further away are amazed. But the, another way to put it is this. The ones who are most familiar with Jesus and his ministry and his teaching, his miracles, the ones who are most familiar and most easily able to access the temple and come to, to the temple every single Sabbath, the ones who would hear the Word of God taught regularly at the temple are the ones who are mocking and ridiculing, who are skeptics. Isn't that interesting? I find that really intriguing. We're going to pick up on that in just a second. Let's read the rest of the text. But this is what is, was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on, earth, on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord. Uh, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to continue to read a little bit further, uh, but most likely I'll stop at 21 this morning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with great works and wonders and signs that he did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to a definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we'll stop there in our reading this morning. Again, going back to the beginning opening statements of Peter in his message, he stands up. The, the, the rest of the people are ministering, correct? The rest of the people who have received the Holy Spirit, whether it's the 120 or however many were there from the original 120, or whether it's just the 12, the scriptures are somewhat unclear. I tend to hold to more of the Spirit fell on all of these who were gathered together. They were, the rest of these people were doing what? They were ministering to all different people in all different languages, correct? We saw that last week. People are amazed. And perplexed, as I just said, most likely the amazed and perplexed and saying, what does this mean? Are people most separated from the day-to-day -day activity in Jerusalem and Judea? But the people in Jerusalem and Judea, which connect back, by the way, to where you're first going to be witnesses, right? For the disciples. The people, for the most part, from Jerusalem and Judea, again, those who would regularly go to the temple, would regularly hear the scriptures being taught in the temple, who ran into Jesus regularly for three plus years, who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching, who observed him, who followed him, who cried Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, are people in the beginning of our text today, now later on we're going to discover that many of them will repent, but at the beginning of the text, still at this point in time, Peter identifies them as absolutely, what? Skeptical. Aren't they? Ah, these people are just drunk with wine. Not just Peter, not just the eleven, but all these people who are speaking in tongues. 
He's saying they're all just drunk with wine. Another way to put it, what they're really saying is to everybody else, ignore these people. They're lunatics. That's they're saying. In the midst of that, Peter gets up. The same Peter who denied Jesus before a slave girl. As you know, we've said it many times. But the Spirit's on him now with power. Right? We don't want to get off that too quick, do we? Spirit's on him with power now and everything transforms. Why is this so important? Because what Jesus just said, his last words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, I, again, I want to say this briefly, and then we'll get off of it, but I would argue what happened with Peter as it, like uh, almost a two, uh, and, and the rest of 120, seemingly like a two-step process. First, we saw that Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit, right? The disciples. But later on, he says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you in a few days. So in, the, in this storyline in Acts, this really weird time frame where it's like a two-step thing that takes place, shortly thereafter from this point becomes a two-step or one-step process. It's one step. You are saved and you receive the Spirit with power. And we, we know that both from the teaching, the vast teaching of the Scripture of the New Testament, but also the examples, don't we? When Paul gets saved, what happens? When Saul gets saved, what happens? Does he have power or does he not? He has power. Spirit of power, right? The Spirit's come upon him with power. And you see this over and over and over again. Throughout the Scriptures, both in teaching and example, they become a a one-step thing, not a two-step thing. And the reason I would argue why this is a two-step thing, in this, if, if you were wondering, why it seems like it's a two-step process at this point in time, is because the Spirit with power would come according to Jesus' promise. So it's going to come when? After he leaves. I've got to go so that, what? The Spirit can come. I've got to go so the Spirit can come. And he says, when the Spirit comes, you're going to do even greater things than I did. But after this point, it becomes a one-step process very quickly. Why is this important? Because Peter illustrates to us right away what happens in a true believer when the Spirit comes upon us. Now certainly, I said it last week, certainly there's no question in the Scripture there are special times of anointing you can find throughout the Scriptures. There's no question. There are special times of anointing on people in the New Testament to do special things. But it's not that there's no power in between those special anointings. There's still power in, in between as well. It's not light off, lights on. That's not how it works. Light's always on. It's just, if I may use the illustration, it's like, you know what a, 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 a three-way light bulb is. We all have three-way light bulbs. Forget the first way, okay? Let's pretend it's only a two-way. Kind of like when the Spirit comes, light's on with power. It's like what we would call the second click on your, on your light bulb. Forget, again, forget the first light bulb, light click. But it's darkness, click, click, light's on. There's power. You can see, can't you? And the light's being proclaimed pretty clearly throughout the room, right? And what happens to the darkness in your room? goes away, right? That's the picture of the Scriptures. I would argue there are some times of special anointing where the third click comes on. And it's even brighter. But for too often, I think, I find Christians thinking that it's a two-way bulb, and somehow the idea is when I get saved... The plug goes into the wall, but there's still basically no power to the light bulb. That's not a biblical construct. There's no, when, if we're going to use a, a light bulb perspective or a lamp perspective to illustrate, there's no off switch on, 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 the, on the lamp. When the spear plugs, plugs it into the wall, so to speak, the light's on. Power's there. 
and the light is blazing out. And you know as well as I do, even the two-way light bulb, you, if it's on a three-way light bulb, when it's on, on, on level two, ignoring level one again, you can't even really look at the light bulb very long, can you? Because it hurts. And then occasionally the spirit comes along and flips it up to third level, or in our case, second level, special anointing. But when he's done with that, for whatever purpose it is, he flips it back over to what? Did he turn it off? No! That's not a biblical construct. We're not sitting around with no power waiting for power. If we're saved, the Spirit has come. And he's come with power. So the contrast for, is, is clear with Peter. It's either no power, which we saw when? When he denied Christ. But then from here on, power's on, isn't it? And there's times when it's, 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 it's the, the, the first level and other times the second level. And no question, but the power's always there. It's always cranked. It's always shining. So what we have here is we have the contrast between Peter of old and Peter of new. Spirits come with power, and now what happens? Peter is transformed. He's at level three here, isn't he? And he gets up, and he does what? He preaches. And the first thing he does is what? To these Jews from, from uh, Judea and Jerusalem, the first thing he does is what? He rebukes them. Doesn't he? That's pretty bold. These are the people who killed Jesus. These are the people who cried, crucify him. First thing he does is he rebukes them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my, my words. Another way to put it is, you'd best listen up. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which is nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. But this is what, in this, verse 16 is where it gets really intriguing. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, it's easy for us to just breeze right over that and just say, well, he's getting ready to quote from the Old Testament, the book of Joel. This is Joel chapter 2. It's really easy just to say, well, he, okay, now we're going to look at Joel. But before we get off the opening statement there that we find in verse 16, before we get to 17, and the actual quote from Joel, is, is something that's very interesting. He's speaking to the people of Jerusalem. He's speaking to the people who live in Judea. Speaking to Jews. People, again, who went to the temple regularly. They sacrificed regularly. They were there hearing the word taught all the time. And you know what they would hear regularly? Because one of the favorite themes that was being talked about and being preached about from the Old Testament is about a coming Messiah. And if what they were preaching and teaching in the temple was about a coming Messiah, you know what one of the most famous passages they would have preached? Obviously, Isaiah would show up. Isaiah 7, right? Uh, Isaiah 53. There's a number of passages from the suffering servant passages, 39 through 66. But Joel chapter 2 would be front and center. It would be right up there with those. And chapter 7 where it talks about a virgin shall conceive. And many other passages, but Joel would be right there. And so what Peter is doing when he speaks to these people who would be in the temple all the time, regularly, he's saying, guys, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? These people must be drunk. What's, what's going on, what he's really saying is this, what is going on right before your eyes People of Judea, people of Jerusalem, what is going on right before your eyes is what you've heard about in Joel. What you're observing, and I would say have recently observed, and what you will continue to observe, is something you all should know really, really well. That's what he's saying to them. 
It's something that the priests have been talking about. It's something that you all have been longing for. And under his breath, you can almost hear, although you're looking for him for all the wrong reasons. Correct? And so we've got a really, really strong rebuke on the people in Jerusalem and Judea. And then he begins to quote from Joel. And he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We'll just stop on 17. Now, let me just address a few things as we work our way through this text. <clears throat> because in order for us to understand it clearly, we've got to start right from the beginning of this section and work it through. Notice, firstly, he says, and, and, and this is going to unlock a lot for us in understanding the text. And in the last days, as he quotes Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares. Just stop on that, on that phrase right there. In Joel, in the last days, now in Joel itself uses a different structure, sentence structure there, but it's close enough. It, 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 he's, I don't want to get into the details of why sometimes you find in the New, in the New Testament the quotation is subtly different. The big thing to remember is that when they quote the Old Testament, the quotations are inspired even when they're altered. So just, just leave it at that. Does that make sense? Even when they're altered, they're still inspired. Now, I think there's other reasons for why they alter at times, but they're, they're varied. Be that as it may, in this section, when he says, in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, he alters because it doesn't say last days, it uses another term, but the idea is still the same. Why do I pause on this? Here's why. Because too often in our churches, what we think of when we hear the last days, we think the wrong things. For example, when we see in the scriptures the last days, we don't think about Peter's days, do we? We don't think about Paul's days. Like in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says what? In the last days, difficult times will come. Right? Then he says... And what do we do all the time? We think, well, that's probably right now. But see, for Paul and Peter and other places of the Scripture, that's not their primary mindset. Their primary mindset is much bigger than that. When he says here, when Peter says here, the, in the last days these things are going to happen, he's saying to the people of Judea and Jerusalem, in effect, you're in them. You're in them. You're in the last days. This is the last days. And that's not how we think. We think last days, too often we think about, well, last days are like, like Revelation, end of Daniel, Christ's actual return. That's what we think. Peter draws a very strong differentiation in this text, and I want it's very important we see it. In the last days it shall be, verse 17, and then verse 20, at the end, before what? What? The end of verse 20. Before what? The day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So what comes before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day? The last days. We'll get into the whole discussion of the day of the Lord in just a second. But the last days come before the great day of the Lord here, right? The great and magnificent day of the Lord. Peter is speaking to the people of Jerusalem and Judea, and he says, what's going on here should not surprise you. Why? Because Joel, what? Prophesied it. Joel talked about it. He prophesied it. He declared that it would happen when? In the last days, you see it happening before you. Do you not? Isn't that, what he said? Isn't that what he's saying to them? You're seeing it happen. Now, we're going to get into some of the specifics in just a second. But that's, generally speaking, what he's saying to them. You shouldn't be surprised. That you are surprised is horrifying, Peter is saying. That you would be that asleep is horrifying. That you could possibly miss this is horrifying. 
is what he's basically saying as he rebukes them. This shouldn't surprise you. We're not drunk. We're just saying, this is what Joel prophesied. It's here. It is here. Now. Right now. So for Peter, it's the end days. It's the last days. It's the end times. For Peter. Well, how could he say it's the end times? How could he possibly say it's the end times? Wasn't there a whole lot more that needed to happen? You know what the answer to that is? No. At, at Peter's time, there's only one more thing that needed to happen. Anybody know what it was? What, what, okay, the, 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 the proclamation, I forgot that one. Okay, the whole pro, the proclamation is pro, it was prophesied that it's going to go to the end of the earth. Okay, good. There's one other thing. Anybody know what it is? Jerusalem would have to be destroyed. That was prophesied as well. Those are the two things. I hear all the time all, the, all these statements that, you know, prophecy is happening in our midst. It's being fulfilled in our midst right now. Just read the news. It's like, no, it's not. What needs to be fulfilled has been fulfilled, except for what you were pointing out. You want to be involved in prophecy? <laughs> what should you do? Spread the word. My goodness. Absolutely. We like to get all caught up in all sorts of news items. No, you know what the really cool thing? End of the world. End of the earth. To the ends of the earth. That's the cool thing. So for Peter, this is the end days. This is, to use his exact words, this is, and in the last days, and the implication, this is the last days because what I'm about to tell you from Joel is beginning to happen. It's around you. You're seeing it and living in denial because the Spirit's not at work in you. I think Peter's perspective is a really important perspective. You know what the alternative is? You find it in 2 Peter and, and Jude. The alternative is every day is the same as the last. I get up assuming that today is going to be the same as yesterday. I live my life today assuming that today will be just like it was. And that tomorrow, when I go to bed tonight, I assume that tomorrow will be just like today. That, that perspective receives a grotesque condemnation by Peter. In 2 Peter and Jude. Horrific, horrific condemnation. Very different when we're living with the mindset that this is the last days. That's why Paul, if you think about it, that's why Paul says what? Because I know the fear of the Lord, I what? Persuade men. What is he talking about? He's talking about the the judgment day, isn't he? Because I know, I realize, I dwell on the reality of his judgment. I, I, I dwell on the reality that, that God will judge. And it could be when? Today. As I go to bed tonight, I, I, I must dwell on it. may be tomorrow. You see, I can't live life like expecting that tomorrow's going to be just like today. If I have an end times mindset. Does that make sense? And that all comes by what? The Spirit with power. See, for Peter, Spirit of power, it's like, woo, i got to talk. Did you get that? Spirit comes with power, and Peter's like, dude, you need to know this is what Joel says. And you need to know it now. Do you hear that there? That's what happens when the Spirit with power comes on. The alternative, again, well, tomorrow's going to be just like today, so there's no impetus, right? No fuel in the tank. There's no drive. There's no zeal. There's no anything. Why? Because the Spirit with power reminds me of what? The fear of the Lord. The Spirit with power reminds me of the love of Christ. And I'm controlled by the love of Christ, and I'm, I'm compelled to speak because of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord based on the end days, the last days. Well, here Peter says, in the last days it shall be God declares, this isn't Peter declaring, it's God declaring, and as Peter speaks to these Jews in Judea and, and Jerusalem, 
they would have to, as he brings Joel to the table, go, I can just picture the people, the people in that area going, uh -huh. what? They know the text. And suddenly he brings it to bear and starts explaining it. Not explaining it. He, interestingly enough, he doesn't explain it, does he? He just speaks it. What does he say? Well, he, as he speaks Joel, he says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's an interesting statement. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, I would, I would argue that when it says I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, he's not saying I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not like you think he is. Because in context, if he's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, the spirit he's talking about is with what? power, right? Now, unless we believe in universal salvation, this can't be talking about all as in every single person. Does that make sense? Can't be. So what is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, we've got to try to get into this Jewish mindset again. In the Old Testament era, who were prophets, and, and, and who were, generally speaking, who were all these people who had had visions and all the rest? They were special people, weren't they? They even had schools for prophets. And in Jesus' day, the idea even, and he's addressing these issues in, in, in a hinting type of way here, in Jesus' day, in Peter's day, the Jews would typically only recognize prophets that were in the upper crust of society. They, were, they, would, they, they had potential of being considered a prophet, but other people were not. Now, you find there are some unknown people that were nobodies in the Old Testament, but by Jesus' day, that wasn't the case. What he says here, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It probably has two meanings. On the one hand, it's probably, even though Peter doesn't understand it at this point, he will in a little bit, it's probably referring to, it's not just Jews anymore, it's going to also be Gentiles, but it's also probably referencing, because you see all the people that are listed who are going to be responding to it, you, you'll find um, sons and daughters, daughters weren't prophets in, the, in, in Jesus' day, you also find young men, well, no, there's older, more established people, and you also will find uh, male servants and female servants. Uh-uh, not in Jesus' day. Not in Peter's day. But he's saying, no, this is going to be a pouring out of the Spirit that is going to affect all types of people, which is probably what it's referencing. Jews, Gentiles, and all types of people. All structures of people. No caste system. No, you're privileged and you're not. The Spirit is going to go regardless of who you are. Regardless of your setting. The Spirit is going to go where He wills. Or as, as Jesus says, the Spirit, what? Blows where He wills. So He says, in the last days, Joel said it, Peter says, in the last days I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And look around you. What is, in fact, isn't that what Peter's saying? Look around you. Do you not see the Spirit at work? Do you not see this already being fulfilled? It's clear. They're speaking in tongues. Now, let me give you one more qualifier to this text before we get into any more of the specifics. I would argue when Peter brings Joel to the text here, to the table, uh, for the discussion, for his explanation, he is referencing something that we need to understand. And it's, and it's discovered in, in this statement in verse 20. So we're jumping around a little bit. Before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. So what we saw is, in the last days it will happen. Correct? But the idea is it's going to happen, and it's going to continue to happen, till when? Till the great day of the Lord, when Christ returns and judgment takes place. Correct? You see that? But I would argue that what, what the greater teaching of the Scripture is, and I don't want to get into all the controversies or anything like that, but just in the, in the, in the, in the, um, the history of the Scriptures, you have different things coming up at different times. 
throughout the storyline from this last, the beginning of the last days, which it begins when, when Christ declares all authority, all power to come unto me, then make disciples, and then he goes back to heaven. Right? That's the beginning of the end times, all the way to that great and terrible day, or great and magnificent day, he says here, day of the Lord. It's a time frame that now is extended out about almost 2,000 years, correct? How long will it extend? Don't know. But it has at least almost 2,000 years now. It doesn't mean Joel is not saying nor implying that all these things will always be in existence during that entire time frame or in that entire timeline that they'll all be showing up all the time. For example, last night if you were outside and you looked up in the sky and you saw the moon, was it blood red? No. Today, well today it doesn't count, but yesterday afternoon when the, when the clouds finally cleared, was, was the sun shining? Well, yeah, it was. It doesn't mean that the blood, the, the moon will always, throughout this entire time from the beginning of the end days to, to the great day, day of the Lord, that it will always be red and the sun will never shine. That's not what the text means. It's talking about the beginning and the end and the time in between and throughout this time frame, things are going to be happening. Does that make sense? Elsewhere, the scriptures do talk about tongues, but I would argue that in 1 Corinthians 13, as well as some other passages, it says that it will fade away. And it, I would argue it did, historically, fade away. And it served a very important purpose. We're not going to get into all those purposes at this point in time. For example, but it is interesting, he says, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. All types of flesh, Jews and Gentile, doesn't matter what position you are in life. He's going to pour it out on all different types of people. And that spirit being poured out is going to be poured out with power. That's the context. The result is going to be power will be evident. That's the point of Joel. The result will be when the spirit is poured out on all flesh, it will be evident. How will it be evident? Well, he goes on, he says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That's the section of this activity going on. If you read through the book of Acts, you will find there are various times throughout the book of Acts where people are having visions, People are having dreams and prophesying is take pla taking place. Later in the book of, of Acts, I think it's chapter 21, it may not be that late, but um, Andrew's four daughters are prophesying, are described as prophesying. So you find that taking place throughout the book of Acts. Elsewhere, Paul has other dreams and visions too, doesn't he? And does John not have a vision? He clearly has a vision, doesn't he? Should it be expected that you have dreams and visions? No. Again, is the, sun, is the sun shining? Well, not today, but you get the idea. Does the sun shine regularly? Does the moon turn red very often? Eh, not very often. But in this time frame, it does happen. Well, when did the sun ever stop shining? Ah... <laughs> What happened when Jesus was on the cross? It did, didn't it? What, did all sorts of weird things happen when Jesus was on the cross? What kind of things happened? What then? The, the curtain was rent. What else? Earthquakes. Interesting, right? And these people... In, what's that? And the dead people came out of their graves? These people are from Jerusalem and Judea he's speaking to. He's saying, he's saying to them, dudes, you know, you know Joel too. You know the prophecy. Can I say dudes? Okay. A couple people smirking back there. You know the prophecy. And you were here. You saw it. You felt the earth shake. 
everybody knew the dead people came out of the grave. If you were from Jerusalem and Judea, you think that would spread? <laughs> yeah, I think. And it got dark. Supernaturally dark. It wouldn't surprise me, although the scriptures don't record it, I don't think, but it wouldn't surprise me if the, if the moon turned, turned red and all that. It would not surprise me. Don't know. What is Peter saying? All those things you experience, they're fulfillments of the beginning of the last, what? Days. You're in them. Now, let me just say this real quickly. I don't expect to have visions or dreams. One of the reasons why I don't is because the Scriptures are fulfilled. Not fulfilled, that's the wrong word. The Scriptures are completed. I would argue very strongly the Scriptures are completed. We have the 66 books. We don't need the visions and the dreams anymore. However, however, one could argue that prophecy is a different animal. Now, what I mean by that is not foretelling the future. As in, God told me, and so now I'm going to tell you about something that's going to happen in your future. That's not, no, no, no. Most of, especially when you go back to the Old Testament, and we need to understand, this is how they thought about prophets back in Jesus' day, and Peter's day. Most of the prophecies, or the, the working of the prophets, were not foretelling the future, but they were more focused on exhortation and confrontation. If you don't believe that, feel free to read the writings of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets. Now I know, in the middle of all those, there's prophecies about the future, aren't there? But the primary ministry of all those prophets, major and minor, in the Old Testament was primarily doing what? Preaching the Word of God and calling the people back to repentance and back to faithfulness and worship. The vast majority of the prophets' work was that. And I would argue when he says, in the last days, the Spirit is going to pour out on all flesh. There's all kinds of flesh with power. I would argue this is one of those things that is ongoing today. There's, I think the dreams and visions will probably come back again down in, right before the, the end days. I mean, the very end, the great day of the Lord. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they show up again. And certainly we read Revelation. There's all sorts of weird things going on in the heavens and on the earth, right? But the proclamation of the Word of God and exhortation is not only something that the Old Testament prophets did, but it's something that every single believer is called to today. Is, are we not? Aren't we? Now let me just say this. When the Spirit is honest in power, you know what's going to happen? We're going to speak. That's the point. When the Spirit's honest in power, we're going to what? We're not going to be like Peter with the, with, the, with the slave girl, are we? Are we? No. If the Spirit's honest with power, and even if it's just the, the normal power, not the super anointing occasionally, even if it's just normal power, what's going to happen? We're going to proclaim. Proclaim what? Well, there's no better way to understand it than this. I love this. What's Peter proclaiming? He's proclaiming the Word of God. Is he not? He's proclaiming the Scriptures. It's here, and then in, in the future weeks you'll see it again and again and again. And what does Paul do over and over again? He proclaims, what he proclaims either is coming out of the Old Testament... Or he's proclaiming something out of the Gospels. Isn't he? There's only one exception for, for Paul, and that's 1 Corinthians 7. And he freely admits it. He says, he, he says, this is not from Jesus, but here it is. Now, it's inspired. But he's saying, this thing that I'm talking about right here is not from Jesus. 
and he gives it to us. Everything else is what? A proclamation from the Old Testament or, or, or a, or a uh, teaching based upon the Gospels every step of the way. So what is Peter proclaiming? Pure and simple, he's proclaiming the Scriptures with power. That's what happens when the Spirit comes with power. Too often, Christians are thinking, I have no power. I hear it all the time. To this day, I hear it all the time. Well, I don't know what to say. What do you mean you don't know what to say? Spirit with power. Right? I mean, we, we like sound, sounding like, like Moses, don't we? Well, I, I, I'm not able to speak. And we forget that God said to Moses what? Who made your mouth. I love that statement. Who made your mouth? Or who made your tongue? It's one or the other. Either way, it's the same. Includes the vocal cords all the way forward. Who made it? The obvious answer is, God made it. When the Spirit comes with power, what happens? Well, he, I want you to notice, this, there's no command here. What does he say? When the Spirit comes, God will, God will pour my Spirit with power, Chapter 1.8. And your sons and your daughters must prophesy. Is that what it says? Is it a command? They will prophesy. You know what it says? They will. They will proclaim. They will exhort. They will trumpet the scriptures. They will trumpet the truth. And then it goes on in verse 19 since we talked about 17 and 18 already. Verse 19, that will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. And I suspect a lot of that stuff is yet to come. Remember what we said? Peter's looking at beginning and conclusion, but he's really talking about the grand sweep. But we did have some of that already, didn't we? A precursor with uh, Jesus' crucifixion. No question about it. Some have argued the blood is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. <clears throat> um, I guess I'm just not intelligent enough to figure all that out at this point. The point is that in the grand sweep, what Peter is arguing through Joel is these things will continue for how long? It goes on in verse 20, And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. What is, what is Joel saying and Peter proclaiming from Joel? He's saying that we're in the end days. We're in the last days currently. All power and all authority has been given to Jesus. And yet, at the same time that we're in the last days, there's one other thing yet to come. And that's what Joel addresses and Peter quotes. Before the great, or the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. <clears throat> that is a prophecy. Joel's prophecy, but it's also Peter's. Since Peter's saying it. There is a day yet to come. It's called the day of the Lord. And when Peter references and Joel references the day of the Lord, what is he talking about? He's talking about the day of the Lord's return, the day of the Lord's return to judge the living and the dead. And his judgment will be righteous completely. It'll be holy completely. It'll be absolutely right in every way. And Peter declares this to them. All of these things are happening and you're saying these people are drunk? Serious? This is the fulfillment of what you know to be true. It's the beginning and it will continue all the way up to the day of the Lord. This, this day of the Lord that will yet come. And in our day today, on August 18th, 2019, it's still yet to come at 11.10 a.m. It's still yet to come. But for Peter, as he speaks to these people, 
He feels that. He remembers that. It's like the most important event on his calendar. It's like the interpretive event. For Peter, there's, there's two interpretive events, isn't there? For his life. The two interpretive events of his life are one you could put in one, it's several things, but all in one clump. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Calendar point number one. Correct? Everything changed. Sins were atoned for. All power and authority given. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And along with that, right before the ascension, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Calendar event number one, past tense for Peter. And if you're a believer, past tense for you. And everything for Peter, that sequence of events that I will call one event in the calendar, that sequence of events was one of the two interpretive keys for Peter's life. And from Peter's perspective, it should be for any believers. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Why? Is an essential interpretive calendar event for Peter that interprets everything from here on out. And the other thing that interprets everything from here on out for Peter is what? The day of the Lord. He's looking backwards and he's looking forwards. What Christ accomplished and what he's going to accomplish. What had happened has been applied to his life. What will happen is something yet to come, and he calls it the day of the Lord, that great and magnificent day, which is a radical statement, because what has it been described as elsewhere? The great and terrible day of the Lord. That's, and he, he twists it there, doesn't he? Because it is a terrible day, isn't it? Because what's going to happen on that day? Horrific judgment for all those who what? Continue to say these men are drunk. Who, and by the way, lest we miss the point, these men are drunk. Lest we miss the point, because it sounds like a really nasty statement to say, isn't it? Can we just say this? As painful as it's going to come across, to say these men are just drunk is just one of a million or more different ways of excusing the truth. It's just one of a million ways of ignoring the truth. It's just one of a million ways of trivializing the truth, of marginalizing the truth. It was their way. But it's just one of millions, isn't it? Now, of course, we'd like to think that we don't do that, right? But I want to challenge all of us. How often have we heard the truth and we go away unchanged? How often have we heard the truth, read the truth, listened to the truth, considered the truth, and walked away unchanged. Are we not saying the same thing? Oh, we're using different terms. I hope you never leave here after Steve's done preaching and say, he was just drunk. But if you do, okay, whatever. But you know, when we leave church, if I just may use an example, if, if, if what I say is at all truth from the Scriptures, if we walk away, and the most important thing to us when we walk away is lunch. Or going to be a family. Or a sporting event. Or fill in the blank. All we are doing is doing the same thing they did. We're trying to excuse it. We're trying, in other words, to make it set up so that it has no, what? Effect. No power. It's exactly what we're doing. For Peter, for Peter, there's only two things that are important to him. Why? Because the Spirit's on him with power. There's only two things. His calendar shows it so clearly. It's Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his promises. 
It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord. Yet to come. And for Peter, because he has a spirit with power, the day of the Lord is what? Great and... What, no, what does Peter say? Magnificent. Why? Because he has the righteousness of Christ. Because he has a spirit with power, the evidence is there. This isn't just words in, in, on a page. The spirit is at work in him, and it's evident. The spirit is at work. He knows it is clear that what God promised, God Christ promised, is true for him. He has the righteousness of Christ. Christ did stand in his place. And Christ did place him in his own place. Place Peter in his own place. In Christ's place. The imputation took place. He, Christ, wore Peter's sin and absorbed the wrath. And he, Peter, is now standing in Christ's place and wearing his, what? Righteousness. The evidence is clear. So for Peter, unlike for all these other people, for Peter, the day of the Lord, the next thing on Peter's calendar is what? Great and magnificent. Because on one hand, Christ is going to be displayed like he's not been displayed before. Right? Last time he was displayed as what? A lamb. Sacrificial lamb, right? But now he's coming as judge. But for Peter, because he has the righteousness of Christ, and he has a spirit with power, he knows that it's a magnificent day because he will be with his Redeemer. And he will see him face to face. And he will fellowship with him and he will go to be with him so that where he is, Peter will be forever. So for Peter, it's a great and magnificent day. The day of the Lord. You know what worries me? About us? About Christians in general? That is, what people call Christians? Chris Cobb just recommended a book to me. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's something about the unconverted Christian. It's a really good book. I just ordered it. I'm looking forward to coming in. For a lot of people who call themselves Christians, those two are not those two events are not on their calendar. It's not that they're not most important. They're not even on the calendar. They're not they're not they're not the the tools of interpretation of the events in our lives. Why we get up in the morning, why we live, why we function, why we go to work, why we play, why we, why we eat, why we drink, why we, why we sit down and relax, and why we do all the various things we do. It doesn't show up on the radar screen. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It's the day of the Lord. And when those aren't on our calendar, what does that mean? We're living as if these aren't the what? The last Days, which Paul elsewhere says we're what? Asleep. Now, here's what sticks in my craw. If the Spirit's on me with power, how can I be asleep? How is it possible? Maybe asleep doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe asleep is more like the biblical concept of dead. It's in light of all that, verse 21, and we'll wrap it up here. And it shall come to pass that everyone who what? <clears throat> calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Of course, we have to notice that we can't miss that verse 21 is connected directly to the word before. Can we? Do you see that? 
Verse 20, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And everyone, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Doesn't mean on the great day of the Lord, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Before the great day of the Lord, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved on that day, on the calendar, the great day of the Lord. The great and magnificent day of the Lord. The only way it can be magnificent is why? Because people are calling upon the name of the Lord and therefore being saved from the great and terrible day of the Lord. It becomes the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Now, before we get off of verse 21, though, we need to understand, when he says that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, it doesn't, if my quote Princess Bride, that verse does not mean what you think it means. It doesn't. When he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, it doesn't mean you pray to prayer. It doesn't mean that. It's so much more significant than that. When he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it includes everything that he's talking about, about who Christ is and why he came. You see, when he says, calls upon the name of the Lord, it's like, it's, it, it's the same idea as the way we, uh, where he says about when we pray, pray in Jesus' name. Correct? The idea, again, does not mean what we think it means. Instead, when he says, pray in Jesus' name, it's talking about praying for his glory, for his fame, for his honor, for his magnificence. Praying that he will be magnified in our earth and in my life, in my surroundings. So, in light of that, in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord has the idea that everything is talked about. There's a, there's a humbling of ourselves, right? Has to be. If I'm, if I'm still in my prideful state, if I'm in my prideful lost state, calling on the name of the Lord without humility, it isn't salvation, is it? Because, and, and that's even caused by the Spirit, isn't it? But to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved is a recognition of how vile I am. How much of a hater of God I am. How much of a rejecter of God I am. How much I despised and rejected Him. How much I went on my own way. How I mocked and ridiculed the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How I set myself up to be God and Savior. And on and on and on. So when he says here, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is the idea of, I, up to this point in time, Jesus, have been glorifying who? Me, myself. I've been glorifying me. I've been lifting me up. I'm my own God. I'm my own King. I'm my own Judge. I'm my own prophet. I'm my own priest. To throw all the three in. And king. But when I call upon the name of the Lord by the Spirit, what, ha what, what does that look like? It's you are my prophet, priest, and king. You are my Lord and God. You are my sovereign. You are my ruler. You are my all in all. You are my satisfaction. You are my bread of life. You are my fountain of living water. I reject my cisterns that I've dug, dug all over the place. I reject because I want you because the Spirit's at work in me. And that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord because the Scriptures are really clear that those who actually are saved people, what? They follow Jesus. Is that what it says? John 10. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Is that what it says? Actually, it says, it says I know them. And they follow me. Follow. Elsewhere, they yield fruit. I prune them, they yield much fruit. There is a great and magnificent day coming for some. Those who call upon the name of the Lord. There's a great and terrible day of the Lord coming. 
for those who do not. <sighs> but all those who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Amen? We're in the last days because the first calendar event has taken place. There's yet another calendar event to come. Those, when the Spirit is at work in us with power, become the most important calendar events there are. And they are the interpretive calendar events for the rest of our lives. And you know what's going to happen? The light's going to be on. And we will speak. And we will proclaim. And we will love Jesus. And we will love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. I pray your spirit will work in us. Draw us to yourself. Fulfill your promise to be in us with power. So that we will glory in you and be satisfied with you. So that we will know the love of Jesus and we will understand the fear of the Lord. Lord, I pray for us that the day of the Lord that is yet to come will be great and magnificent, not great and terrible. Help us to understand that we are in the last days because you came and you accomplished all that needed to become accomplished. So glorify yourself in our lives, in our church. Change us so that we will be followers of you and worshipers of you and proclaimers of you for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.